The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Time for the Urban Squeeze on Drive. Uh, I'll introduce you to our special guests in a moment, our favourite urban planners of all, of course. Lots of talk uh, this past week about the ability or not of this city to grow. In fact, the motivation for it to grow or to cope with growth. Often here in Australia, we get a little bit micro in our views around these issues. Populations swell fast or slow all over the world, of course, and challenges of growth speedy or sluggish, are shared everywhere. Some fast facts to ponder. Have a listen to this. Four billion people have been added to the planet since 1950, and the time it takes to add one billion people has dropped to just 13 years. The period of most rapid population growth is behind us. The growth rate has declined since its peak from 1965 to 1970, falling by roughly half in 40 years as women have had fewer children. In the last 50 years, the global fertility rate has dropped from 5 to 2.5, and the average woman in developing countries, excluding China, now has three children, down from six. A look at Nigeria and Japan today suggests what's ahead. Given Nigeria's high birth rate and large number of women of childbearing age, its population is expected to more than double by 2050. The population of Japan, however, is expected to decline. If these general trends continue into the year 2050, Developed countries will not have enough workers to support the higher costs of their aging populations. Developing countries with young populations will not have enough jobs. Just a few little facts that I burgled from a science magazine presentation there online and today's foundation stone, this idea of of shifting population trends. I mentioned our favourite pair of urban planners, Dr Tony Matthews and Associate Professor Jason Byrne, uh, both from the School of Environment at Griffith University. Welcome again. Hello. Thank Thanks, you, Matt. Matt. Hello. Fascinating, this, and uh, a little bit mind-boggling. And uh, trippy was a word I think we used a bit last week. If you think too much about this, your head may well explode. So we'll try to keep it within, uh, well, on, on a tight leash at least. But... There has been talk of capping population here on the Gold Coast this week. Jason, you're smirking. About I'm laughing because I, I talk about this with my students all the time, right? Can it be done? No. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? And I say to them, if we're going to set a population cap, how are we going to do this? We could put machine gun turrets at the border and try and machine gun people. That's not what be very, well very popular, right? No. Yeah. China's tried to do it with their hukou system where they have a registration system where you're born, you're tied to that city. So any benefits like education, healthcare, these kind of things are tied to that city. If you leave that city, you're not entitled to them anymore. But it hasn't worked. There's hundreds of millions of migrant workers in China who flood to other cities irrespective of that. You know, short of maybe barcoding people and tracking them somehow, I, I, so I don't see it. As soon as you say it starts turning into a science fiction right. movie it's straight dystopian away. Dystopian nightmare, right? Yeah. It, it wouldn't work. Yeah. Okay. Tony? I agree with Jason. Any attempt to uh, manage population growth in any city that's connected to other cities by a landmass is not going to work out very well for you. You could try doing it on a national scale like a country like China did and it's still going to fail. Uh, but the idea that you could put a population cap on the Gold Coast is is is, is 
frankly, it's it's not achievable. It's not something that can be done. It's it sounds great in, in as an idea. It's maybe it's a good soundbite, but it's not possible because, I mean, how do you account for people, for example, that uh, work here uh, but don't live here, or live here but don't work here? You've got a, a flow of hundreds of thousands of cars mm. in and out of here every day. Um, you've got people moving from interstate. You've got people coming from overseas. It just wouldn't, as Jason says, short of a physical border around Gold Coast City, it's not going to happen. There has been attempts to do this, at least in a sense, I mean, just looking a little south of the border there uh, at Byron Bay in terms of, uh, well, being fiercely regulatory in terms of land release to stop uh, further growth. Uh, What about that? So that's a little bit different to population growth though, right? So we can certainly use some of the measures we have like lessening the amount of land that's available for housing, but the end result of that seems to be that you force up housing prices. It gets back to the affordability issue we were talking about just a week or so ago. So suppressing supply increases demand. Increases demand. Um, And then if you look at the issues we've been talking about with density, you're back to where we were um, with some of the concerns about loss of privacy, overshadowing these sorts of things as well. In, In reality, being able to try and stop people coming in hasn't been feasible anywhere. Even India tried some of this, right, reducing natural population growth through forced sterilisation, right? And, you know, these kind of schemes don't work either. Yeah, you know, well, I've, one thing I'll say about the Byron thing is you've got a big equity question there then because right. if you if you start restricting the amount of land that's made available for development and housing, then you're, you you artificially run the, risk or run the risk of creating an artificial bubble. And that pushes a lot of potential purchasers out of the market. Now, what if those purchasers live their whole lives in Byron up to that point? What if they grew up there? Why should they not be allowed to stay there? Why should they be pushed out by market forces that are a consequence of a social policy? It, it, that makes no sense. And I've seen the opposite as well in Ireland, where I come from, where you've got... Uh, what are known as Gwaeltocks or Irish-speaking areas. Now, there's not that many of them around. There's only about What's two- that word again? Gwaeltocked. Gwaeltocked. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those are areas where the Irish language is predominantly spoken as the principal language. And they, they represent only about 2% of, of settlements in Ireland. But well, I've seen reverse population management there where uh, local councils try to prioritise Irish speakers moving back into the area or being able to build the kinds of houses that they wanted and in turn try to exclude other people from buying into the area, either as permanent residents or as, as, as owners of holiday homes. And um, that's basically unconstitutional. Um, so either side, whether you're trying to keep population down artificially or you're trying to artificially increase it, you run into a myriad of social, equitable, legal you know, all sorts of community problems. Uh, it, and again, it just goes back to the fact that this idea of, of artificial population caps on, on an area, a city, a town, they just don't work in practice. Can't be done. So say our urban planning experts, Associate Professor Jason Byrne and the man you just heard there, Dr Tony Matthews, both from Griffith University on the Urban Squeeze this afternoon. Matt Webber's my name. Um Where can we go to here then on the Gold Coast? There's been stories floating around this morning about, uh, well, the possible rezoning, possibly sometime of an area of land just north of here. There seems to be this uh, kind of yin and yang going on, perhaps that's too crude a way to describe it, where there's excitement about south-east Queensland being this growth destination and then almost a bit of a fear like it can't happen this way we can't have any more people go away we're full um what's the correct balance 
Yeah, that's that's an amazing question, isn't it? There's a lot of trade-offs here in terms of how do we preserve the lifestyle that we love that's attracted us all to southeast Queensland and not lose that, but also accommodate other people wanting to move here. We were having a chat about that this morning. You know, there were some decisions made in the 1970s about the Northern Growth Corridor, places like Upper Coomera, yes, where the area that's amazing wildlife habitat has since been developed for. Um, for, for residences, um, which is essentially leading us towards the extinction of koalas. And the sugarcane land was protected because it was viable agricultural land and the sugar industry was booming. Uh, so things have changed. In hindsight, yeah. right, it would have been better maybe to have thought about how we might develop some of that sugarcane land and protect Upper Coomera. But that, that horse has bolted. When foresight is it? Sorry to, to cut you off, uh, Tony, but foresight is an interesting thing here. You, you guys deal in projections. You look at numbers into the future. Um, how seriously do decision makers take those projections? Because if people did have access to a crystal ball of sorts and they would surely look at this you know area of land and the sugar industry that exists in it and think well you know maybe good for 20 years certainly not for 50. Um, yeah maybe not for sugar but it could be used for a whole heap of other different kinds of agricultural purposes right Tony we were just talking about yeah we before. were just talking about this and the, the the difficulty here is that if you rezone agricultural land for some kind of residential or community development then you're not getting that land back um, it's gone. You cannot reasonably restore developed land back mm. to agricultural purity. That that doesn't really happen. That kind of reverse engineering is not easy, not cost effective. And so that's, that's been China's curse. Sorry to yeah. interrupt. You know, they've they've developed their viable agricultural land as their cities have boomed in the in the need to try and accommodate people, and they've they've lost it. Now they're buying land in Australia and Africa. Mm. Sorry, I cut you off. That's okay, Jason. Um, uh, I'll I'll say you know I was out in Coomera actually on Wednesday with my natural resource planning studio uh, students who are doing a big project on trying to find some way of mediating development pressures and the massive declines those are causing in the local koala populations is very serious. It's a pity, really, with this Norwell Valley development that's sort of entered the public mind in the last day or two that we didn't originally seek to develop those lands and, as Jason says, leave the koala bushlands around Coomera um, and Pimpama alone. But anyway, that's the benefit of hindsight. The population thing in southeast Queensland, that goes back a long way. There's plenty of history there, right back to the 60s and 70s. And there was high anxiety about it then as well. It was mostly interstate migration, a little bit from across the Tasman. Uh, and that persisted at a fairly rapid clip through the 70s and the 1980s. In 1989, a report came out of the University of Queensland, which provided population projections for southeast Queensland and for all the major cities in it, including the Gold Coast. And it sent shivers up and down the spines of government at the time. And there was a state election and the Goss government came in uh, in 89-90, became the state government here in Queensland, and they decided that there needed to be strategic response to regional population growth. And so they developed a regional growth management system, which we now know as the regional planning system. And so population accommodation or the accommodation of population growth in southeast Queensland is managed on the regional scale, not right. on the city scale. So we look at the region, basically, from Noosa down to down to the border, taking in uh, Toowoomba as well. And we look at the overall regional population, and that's what we try and plan for. And then each local council within the region, Gold Coast City Council or Brisbane City Council or whoever, then their own planning instruments have to transpose the directions that are set down in the regional plan. So that's how we do it. And we then we revise the regional plan and each council revises their own plan every five to seven years to take account of changes in the demographic circumstances. And that's been best practice here for 25 years now. Yeah. That gets back to your question, Matt, about how do we 
look at this, you know, do we have a crystal ball? We, we do in a sense. These regional planning documents are like a crystal ball of sorts. They're based on population projections. In our southeast Queensland region plan at the moment is an urban footprint and this new development that's been talked about today, after a few people were on a golf course, it kind of reminds <laughs> you of the White Shoe Brigade, doesn't it's, it? What? Um, it's not in that urban footprint. It's, it's rural land. It's outside the urban footprint. So there would be an, an enormous amount of work, political work, among other work, that would have to be done to see this come online. Political is all done on golf courses, isn't it? <laughs> Restaurants? No, no comment from the planner. <laughs> uh, gents, you'll be pleased about this. Uh, we've got a call. one three hundred nine zero three ninety one seven is the number if you want to participate at any time. Encourage you to. It's uh, remiss of me not to mention that to this point, but I do get excited when these lads come in. Uh, Jason Byrne, Associate Professor at the School of Environment at Griffith University. Dr Tony Matthews alongside him. Jules from Corumban, regular participant in the quiz. Now you're uh, on the Urban Squeeze. Jules, hello to you. Just using a bit of memory from the old banks. Uh, going back to uh, the early 70s in the Redland Shire, as it's known now, uh, Wellington Point, Victoria Point, all those areas was basically at its own postcode, as far as I remember, known as Salad Bowl. Seriously? And, yes, and all of the... Well, not all of but a lot of produce and market gardens were all over those areas. And uh, I know it's a difference between the cane-growing sort of soil and areas where there'll probably be a lot of landfill required and change of irrigation standards and whatever it might need. But there was a prime example of what one of your professors mentioned about once you cover aggregable land with concrete and roads, it is gone. That's and it. That's what, they did. that's what they did in Redland Shire. It is gone. The best, they, hey, all the people that got 48, 40 square blocks or whatever they call them, 40, yeah, whatever, uh, quarter acre blocks, they can grow veggies there very nicely. I've, I've had friends and relatives that have great crops on their little blocks. Yeah, interesting, interesting Jules, reflection. Jules is right. You know, Redlands are bemoaning the loss of this viable agricultural land now. They're looking back and ruining the day that they, they rezone that land. And yeah. it brings in short-term revenue for a local authority, right? So in some ways it can fix ailing coffers for a little while, but then what? Yeah, 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 and I, I might I'll probably get in trouble for this now, but I might point out that another problem that um, is endemic in Redlands is that it's effectively functioning as a satellite city for Brisbane. So there's huge movement out of there in the mornings, people working in town and back there in the evenings, and there's very little happens there during the day because they never satisfactorily brought on stream the other types of infrastructure that you need for a, a, a decent and, and, and long-term community. Oh, you know, there's a theme. <laughs> employment opportunities uh, close by, you know, the kinds of... The sort of stuff that keeps people local was never satisfactorily delivered in my opinion in Redlands and you can see evidence of that any morning you go there you'll see volumes of traffic leaving and very little going in. Interesting thanks Jules. Cheers mate. Jules from Corumban there. Ian is from Southport as well uh, he's uh, he wants to talk about population caps. Ian a former president of the Surfers Chamber of Commerce. Have I got that right Ian? Um, can, you hear, can you hear me okay Matt? I can hear you. Can you hear me more importantly? Yeah, I'll just um, I'll just pull over. I was actually president of Southport Chamber. Yep. I'll just pull over and see if I can go onto hands uh, onto my uh, onto my hands. Have you got? Can you hear me clear now, clearly now? I can hear you clearly, but you you might want to get on with what you want to talk what you're talking about. Okay. Well, about about fifteen years ago, um, I was president of Southport Chamber of Commerce, and we looked at the discussion came up about population caps and strategic 
as part of the overall strategic plan. And your guests today have used language that's quite sensational in terms of um, uh, machine gun towers on the border and that kind of thing. Um, two areas in southeast Queensland have, by default, population caps, and they are Bribie Island and Noosa Shire. And both those areas, as part of their overall strategic plan, recognise the natural beauty, the amenity, the quality of life, issues such as traffic, uh, and, and came up with mechanisms to limit the amount of absolute development, which in turn places a, a maximum capacity on accommodating populations. Now, both of those areas have boomed and gone ahead very, very progressively. If you'd told somebody 20 years ago that there would be homes on Bribie Island that would sell for three or four million dollars, they would have laughed at you. Noosa Shire, the population up there, the, the, the bulk of the people were one of the very few areas that managed to successfully wind back amalgamation, reclaiming their own Shire area so they can continue to ensure that quality development, uh, intense development and maximum opportunity commercially to deliver a really good lifestyle and built product, um, they're, they're, they're the pillars that have been preserved. What Gold Coast has been very good at for the last 40 years is fairly mediocre tourism and mass property development. Mm. And we've We've, we've sort of A.V. Jennings, you know, little cottages, the whole of the, the hinterland area, Pacific Pines, Eleonora, all the way up into Coomera. We talked about the impact on the wildlife. Um, these are things that can't be wound back. But continuing to do this massive high-density infill development in Central Surface Paradise and Chevron Island, it's simply trashing the product. Interesting point and well made, Ian. Uh, thank you for that. It was your analogy, uh, Jason Byrne, the one of the uh, machine gun turrets either end of the coast. I might give you first right of uh, reply here. Thank you for that call, Ian, former president of Southport Chamber of Commerce, making some pretty good points. I agree. I think Ian's got some good points there, but, you know, it's kind of ironic that we talk about three or four million dollar houses on islands when they're not affordable to most of the population. So that's part of the problem when you start to cap land availability. Second is the Gold Coast is incredibly biodiverse. It's one of Australia's most biodiverse cities. Almost half of the Gold Coast is protected and it will stay that way. Um, that's why we have a, a growth management area and urban footprint. I think it's important to sort of clarify what we mean in terms of population growth versus managing development. So we're not, we're not espousing here that we have endless sprawl and... Mm. Uh, lots and lots of houses paving over every bit of land. Um, what we're talking about is sensibly managing the kind of growth we have. And Ian raises another good point, moving away from an economy that's dependent just on land and property development and tourism, getting to what Tony was saying about 
having a diversified economy, right, Tony? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think Ian did raise some good points. And um, I'm familiar with the uh, the Noosa effort to manage population. Um, but this also goes back to what Jason said. Both Noosa and Bribie Island have areas of vast areas of, of high ecological uh, quality which can't be developed so that naturally limits the amount of development and population that can go in there anyway um, but from what I understand about the Noosa case is that they treat their population cap at, not as a cap but rather as an aspirational target and so they'll set their target and then they'll review their target each time they prepare a new development scheme for Noosa which is probably every five to seven years Right. so it's not like they've said we will. this is our absolute upper limit of population we won't exceed that because functionally that's not possible, uh, but they have set an aspirational target. But as Jason has pointed out, they're naturally limited anyway, just like Gold Coast is, by the high-value um, high biodiversity or high-value land with uh, high ecological and biodiversity value in the area. So that naturally... And Bribie, of course, is, is, is bounded on one side by the sea, you know, so right. it's definitely... As is Noosa, so they're, they're not developing that way. Yeah, so that's another border. So, you know, there are natural uh, features that will occur as well. But the targets that those places are using, as be- to the best of my knowledge, are aspirational, not fixed. Interesting stuff. As always, we come to the end of these segments and I think, oh, if only we had another 20 minutes. It's the beauty of it. Also, the frustration. We'll pick things up uh, perhaps next week on the Urban Squeeze. Uh, Dr. Tony Matthews and um, Jason Byrne, Associate Professor Jason Byrne. You've dazzled me with your intellect. I forgot who I was talking to for a moment there both from the uh, the School of Environment at Griffith Uni. Really appreciate your insights and uh, intellect around all of this. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, Matt. You, Matt. It's been a pleasure.